0: Father, what a privilege it is to stand before your people and open your book to preach your word. I pray that you would help us to hear the word of God and help us to be quick to submit ourselves in the application of your word to our own lives and help us to be careful to give you the glory in all things for Christ's sake, amen. So two weeks ago, I began a new series of messages based on Dr. Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. I've titled my messages, Gracious Justice, because as we're learning, it is the grace of God toward us that ought to motivate us to be a just people, a people who are concerned with issues of justice. A grateful people who seek to do justice whenever and wherever we encounter injustice. Now let's remember the biblical definitions of justice. Two weeks ago we found the most common Old Testament Hebrew word translated justice is the word mishpat. It's found about 200 times in the Old Testament. Now, if you want to know whether God cares about a certain subject, a certain issue, all you have to do is do a word search for that word, for that issue in the Bible. And the more times that issue is referenced in the Bible, the greater the importance of that issue to God. And so you know God is not unlike us parents. I should say some parents are a lot like God in this case. How many of you had parents who, when they got sick and tired of telling you the same thing over and over and over, and they were the kind of parents who didn't mind spanking their kids, they would get your hands together, your little hands, and held them in one of their hands, and then they took the switch or the belt or the shoe, the slippers, in the other hand, and as they spanked you, you heard every syllable, Right? It went like, I told you not to ever. <laughs> y'all have parents like that? Anybody? Let me see. You had a parent like that? Okay. I had a parent like that. Did y'all have my parents? Y'all must have had some parents like mine. Damn. Soon you learn what was important to your mother and father if you continue to ignore what was important to them, you knew that you would one day feel the pain administered to the seat of your knowledge. And so the first definition of mishpat is to acquit or to punish everyone based only on the merits of their case, not according to their race, or their gender, or their social class. Mishpat also means to give people their due rights. And we saw several passages that reflected these meanings in everyday life. Two weeks ago, we also learned that Mishpat has a companion in the Hebrew Scriptures that often mentioned in the same sentence and in the same context, because both words are like two sides of the same coin. The other word is the word tzedekah, or tzedakah. It is the word most often translated righteous, or righteousness. But when translated justice, it means to be in a right relationship with God, with self, and with others. You see, the moment injustice occurs, one or more relationships are broken. And so to do mishpat is to repair or to restore justice for those for whom injustice was done. And to do mishpat is to repair or restore what was lost, stolen, broken, or destroyed. And as we mentioned before, the reason tzedekah or righteousness is so closely aligned with justice is that righteousness is a preventative Justice And mishpat is a reparative justice. In other words, if more people were acting righteously toward each other, there would be little need for the restorative kind of justice. But because righteousness is lacking everywhere we turn in society, there is much need for God's people to exercise this kind of restorative justice whenever and wherever we encounter it. Now, all that by way of reminder, what I want to do today is to continue to make the biblical case for justice. You know that some Christians don't give much weight to the biblical teachings in the Old Testament. They say, now, uh, that Christ has come and he has fulfilled the Old Testament law. We Christians should only read and study and obey the New Testament teachings. But what I learned in seminary was that seminary, by the way, is just grad school for pastors, What I learned in seminary was that the rule of thumb is, for the Old Testament biblical application, is this. If the Old Testament command or principle is restated in the New Testament, then it is applicable for the church today. And we can certainly find enough commands and examples in the New Testament to do justice. We also have a reminder from the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy saying that all Scripture originates from God And is useful to us for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So let's turn now to our first passage in Deuteronomy chapter 16. Deuteronomy 16, we're going to look at verses 19 and 20. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice, and justice alone, so that you may live and possess the land your Lord, your God, is giving you. Do you remember the context in which this book of Deuteronomy was written? And do you remember what the word Deuteronomy means? First of all, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. Deutero means second, and nomos means law. And so the first giving of the law is found in Exodus and this now is the second giving of the law found in Deuteronomy. Now for the context, God has rescued or redeemed his people from the wicked Pharaoh in Egypt. And 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and doubt and disobedient, God finally guided them into the promised land of Israel. And God wanted to establish Israel as a theocracy. He rescued them from the Egyptian monarchy. He bypassed an Israeli democracy instead. He established a theocracy. A theocracy is simply a nation state in which God is the ultimate ruler and judge. And as a divine ruler, God makes all the rules. He is the divine lawgiver. And again, you can tell what the lawgiver cares about by the kind of laws that he or she makes and gives to their own people to follow. So in verse 19, God gives his people two negative commands. He says first, don't pervert justice by showing uh, partiality and don't accept a bribe. You see, we know even in today's standard, in today's world, we know that rich people can bribe the system because they have money to pay off judges and officials, right? To get their way or to avoid penalty. Poor people don't have money to have that kind of influence on judges and people in power. So God says to the people in power, the decision makers, the judges, don't take bribes because then you do injustice because the poor can't afford to pay your bribes to get you to side for them. So he says don't take bribes, okay? And so God says don't pervert justice by showing partiality and don't accept bribes. And then in verse 20, we find two positive commands. He says, follow justice and justice alone. The word translated justice here is the word tzedakah, uh, the preventative form of justice, which is to do right by everyone to live righteously. And so one of God's primary concerns as he first established the theocracy nation-state of Israel was justice You see, every nation, state, city, and neighborhood needs the assurance of justice. No nation, no state, city, or neighborhood can thrive or survive without justice. And God understands that. And so he made it a priority to include justice in the civil laws of Israel. You see, you can't have civility. You can't have a civilization without justice encoded in the laws. In fact, in verse 20, we see clearly that God made justice a prerequisite to living the abundant life that he intended for them to live in the land. Uh, Justice is also required for them to keep possession of the land. Very interesting. Do you see that in verse 20? Now, obviously, we don't live in the ancient theocracy of Israel. No, we live in the postmodern democracy or republic of the United States of America. But the principle of justice easily transfers to us because we live in a civilized nation, state, city, and neighborhood. And whatever civility we enjoy is due to the fact that we have just laws. And where there is violence and other injustices, there is lawlessness and or unjust laws that need to be overturned. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy 15 verses 1 through 5 says this. At the end of every season, every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan that he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt that your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands that I'm giving you today. Now, in my first message, we touched on the idea, the idea of the year of Jubilee, when all the debts would be canceled and those who had lost their land for whatever reason their land would be returned to them because land is an essential part of one's capacity for wealth and well-being. Now notice the heart of God in verse 4. It's God's will that there should be no poor among us. There should be no poor among his own people. Apparently there is nothing virtuous about poverty from God's point of view. Now I didn't say there's nothing virtuous about poor people. I said there's nothing virtuous about poverty from God's point of view, otherwise he would not say, there should be no poor among you. In God's perfect world, there would be no poor. Interesting thought, isn't it? Now there are several words in Hebrew translated poor or needy, and each one gives us a hint as to the cause of poverty. For example, some people are poor Because of their own sins, gambling, drug addiction, laziness, alcoholism, etc. Some people are poor because of the sins of others, slavery, racism, greed, war, etc. Others are poor because of natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, forest fires, earthquakes. And then finally, some are poor because of debilitating sickness and disease. The poor spoken of in this passage are those who are poor due to no fault of their own. They suffered unfortunate circumstances that left them needy and dependent on other members in their community. And God says in verse 5 that if they fully obey his laws, including the laws of preventative justice and restorative justice, his blessings would flow freely upon the entire community. See, God thinks so highly about justice that he's willing to reward his people with his many blessings if we commit ourselves to just living, just relationships. Look a little further down into verses 7, 8, 10, and 15 of Deuteronomy 15. He says in verse 7, if there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land your Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your brother. And then in verse 8, he says, rather be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. And then in verse 10, give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. And then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put your hands to. And then in verse 15, he says, Remember that you yourselves were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. And that is why I give you this command today. Fascinating. Now, I want you to see the grace motivated, or the grace motivation that is woven into the fabric of the principles of justice here. Look in verse 7. God says, Don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. In other words, don't be cold-blooded or cheap when it comes to helping the poor in your community. And it's almost as if God sneaks the reason or the rationale for his command to be generous into the text. He says, if there are any poor brothers or sisters in any of your towns, which towns? Oh, the ones in the land the Lord is giving you. See that? It's a subtle hint that those who are well off in that fertile land that was given to them by God, it's a land that was given to them. In other words, they didn't work for it, they didn't earn it, they didn't deserve it. It was a divine grace gift. Israel, the land of promise, the promised land, was a gift, a grace grace gift of God to the people of Israel. And that is why those who have more than enough for themselves should share with those in need. And then look at verse 15. Here's a not-so-subtle hint at the motivation for doing justice on behalf of the poor. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. None of us were slaves in Egypt, but surely we remember that we were once slaves to sin, right? And just like God sent his servant Moses to deliver his people from slavery to Pharaoh, he also sent his son and servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver his church from slavery to sin. And therefore, therefore, we who have been shown such grace and mercy ought to be quick to show grace and mercy to the least of those among us. And during the days of American slavery and also during the days of the civil rights struggle here in America, do you remember the white people who were among the greatest sympathizers and allies to the black people? It was the Jews. Why the Jews? Because they knew what it was like to be persecuted in Hitler's Germany. And they also knew what it was like to be liberated from their Nazi oppressors. And so, some of the Jewish people in America were the closest allies and advocates marching with Dr. Martin Luther King and speaking out against the issues of injustice in our country. And so those of us who have received the grace of God, those of us who know what it was like to be enslaved and sinned and to be robbed of so many blessings of God because of sin, once we've been set free, we ought to be the ones advocating and helping those that are still struggling. Now for a New Testament example of generous and gracious justice, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth encouraging them to participate in an offering to, to relieve, I think it was, the suffering church in Jerusalem. And uh, we want to pull up 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now Doug, I'm, I'm going to go through 1 through 15. I don't think I gave you that many verses, but as I was looking through this text, there are so many good things in there that I extended the passage. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 We're going to go 1 through 15, and that'll be the last set of verses that we'll look at for today. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, he says, And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and complete earnestness and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich." And there is my advice, and here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first ones not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Now, there's a lot of people in our country today talking about equality. This is biblical equality here. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. Then there'll be equality. In other words, equality in the opportunity to give and to receive according to the needs of and the supply uh, that we have. Verse 15, as it is written, he who gathers much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. Number one, here's some lessons that we can learn just from this brief passage in 2 Corinthians 8. Number one, the first lesson we learn from Paul is this. We love because God first loved us. We give because God first gave to us. What ought to motivate us to alleviate the suffering and the poverty of others is the fact that we've already received the grace of God. We give out of his gracious gifts that he's given already to us. You see, gracious justice on our part is made possible by God's gracious justice toward us. Do you see that in verse 1? Paul says to the church in Corinth, We want you to know about the grace of our gracious God. What do you know about the grace of God in your life? What do you know about God's grace operating in your life? Paul says, hey church, I want you to know about the grace of God in your life. The question for us is, are you and I, are we conduits of blessing to those who are less fortunate than us, Are you a conduit of blessing to those less fortunate than you? You say, Pastor, I wish I could help others, but I myself, I'm, I'm, I'm poor and I need some help. I myself need some help. Okay, I got you. I understand. But look what God's grace can do through a poor church going through their own trials of poverty. Look at verse 2. Paul says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty, rich generosity. Those words don't even belong in the same sentence, do they? They don't. They don't even belong in the same sentence and yet the Apostle Paul puts them all together there for us to see. Lesson number two, God's grace is powerful and counterintuitive. God's grace is powerful and it is counterintuitive, it's different than what we might think. Paul said that the Macedonian churches were really, really going through it and to illustrate the powerful grace of God in their lives he gave us an incredible word picture he said imagine a deep dark well of suffering but somehow down in that deep dark well of suffering there was a mixture of overflowing joy and extreme poverty those two ingredients joy and poverty mixed together is like baking soda and vinegar anybody ever mixed baking soda and vinegar let me give you a little household tip. If you get got a clogged sink or bathtub, get some vinegar and some baking soda and pour it down there, and it'll clear it up. It'll bubble up and clear up your clog and your drains, okay? The Apostle Paul says that somehow, down in that deep dark of well and suffering, there's this mixture of overflowing joy and extreme poverty. Those two ingredients of joy and poverty mixed together They explode into hundreds of bubbles until it bubbles up from the deep, dark well of suffering and results in rich generosity. Only the grace of God can do that. Only God's grace can do that. See, it's amazing. Some time ago, uh, when we were raising funds for our stained glass window restoration project, a woman met me at the door after the service. And she gave me an envelope with a large sacrificial financial gift for the project. And when I saw her generosity, I was reminded of this text. You see, this dear woman had gone through the most painful destruction of her marriage and family that I ever heard of, all caused by her husband's duplicity and unfaithfulness. She lost her marriage. A few of her children rebelled against God while processing their own pain and disappointment with their father. She lost her home. Her whole world fell apart but God. She said, Pastor, this is really a sacrificial gift, but I have peace and joy in my heart as I give it. Everything I have that remains belongs to God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 3. Lesson number 3. God's grace empowers you to give beyond your own ability and despite your own Poverty. That's lesson number three. God's grace, it empowers you and I to give beyond our own ability and despite our own poverty. Verse four, lesson number four. When God's gracious justice is at work in you, it will cause you to be eagerly and voluntarily willing to give to those in need. When God's gracious justice is at work in you, you will eagerly and voluntarily give to those in need. Nobody's going to have to coerce you. Nobody's going to have to try to guilt you into into doing it. You're going to eagerly want to do it with joy. Paul said that the Macedonian churches initiated the offer to help alleviate the suffering of the church in need. Entirely on their own, he says, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. Now, I'm trying to wrap my head around this scene of generosity because this is not something that we see every day, not even in the church. Can you picture it? The Apostle Paul the saints in Macedonia, they say, well, Apostle Paul, listen, you told us about the suffering of our brothers and sisters in this Jerusalem church. You've taught us about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now we can't help, but we want to give to help our brothers and sisters in need. Please, please, Apostle Paul, we beg you to take our gifts to the saints in Jerusalem and to give them our love and our greetings in Jesus' name. And maybe the Apostle Paul was like, I can't take all these gifts. Seems that y'all need some of these gifts. Y'all ain't rich. Maybe y'all should keep some of these gifts. Here, take this portion. Keep that. I'll take the rest down there and give to another church in need. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Please, please, Paul, we beg you. Let us have this great privilege to, to serve our needy brothers and sisters. Can you picture yourself like that? Can you put yourself in that picture as the one begging and pleading out of your own poverty, giving away of your substance to help somebody else that maybe is more poor than you, worse off than you? And you're begging them to take it. Listen, when God's gracious justice is at work in your heart, don't be surprised at your own cheerful and insistent generosity. One day, years ago, my wife and I were out to dinner with some friends. And um, we had agreed that we were going to pay for dinner. And so when it came, the check came to the table, I uh, pulled out my wallet to pay for the check. And the wife of this couple said, uh, honey, I think we should pay for the dinner. And the husband's like, well, pastor said he's going to get it. <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah, we got this. And the, the husband's like, the pastor says he's gonna get it, he's covered. And the wife is like, no he's, no, he's not taking it, we're gonna take it. And we were fighting at the restaurant over who's gonna pay the bill. I don't even remember who paid the bill in the end, but the point of this message is, of this illustration is this. When, when the gracious justice of God is operating in your life, you're gonna be eager To be generous and to give and to be a blessing to other people. Finally, lesson number seven, found in verse eight. The sincerity of your love can be tested by your generosity. The sincerity of your love can be tested by your generosity. I realize that we live in an age where many pastors have become skilled at manipulating and guilting people into giving to this cause or that cause or this need or that need, and shame on every pastor who resorts to that kind of manipulation from the pulpit. But that's not what Paul is doing here. As a matter of fact, he says, listen, I'm not commanding you to do anything here. I'm simply testing the sincerity of your love. If you say you love Jesus, if you say you love the saints who are hurting Then show me your love by your gifts. We all know this very well. Let's say it together. Talk is, wait for it, cheap. Talk is cheap. We all from Missouri, the show me state, right? Like Cooper Gooding. Show me the money. Show me the money. Paul says... If you say that you love Jesus, if you say that you love the saints, don't just say it. Demonstrate your love by your generosity. Okay? Anybody can say, I love you. But guess what? Love is a verb. Love is an action word. Jesus said, your treasure is where your heart is. In other words, put your money where you say your heart is. And may God help us all to excel in this grace of giving, especially to help alleviate the conditions of the poor. Okay? And next week we're going to continue to learn about this gracious justice and, and how it applies even in the realm of politics. It's really interesting. You watch the news. And everybody's talking about justice and injustice and how do we solve this problem of justice and injustice. And the Republicans have their ideas and the Democrats have their ideas. The left have their ideas and the conservatives have their ideas. And we're going to see and we're going to show you from this scripture how God's word corrects both parties. Both parties are corrected in this. Okay? So that we can learn... How to be biblical in how we respond to even our current ruminatings, our current thoughts that are flying around the internet and in the news media about this idea of justice and social justice and reparations and all of that stuff. We're going to show you from the scripture how we should clearly think about this from God's point of view and how to do it with the balance of scripture. So let's stand as we worship the Lord.